morning because we're going to be talking about financial well-being. Everyone go hip hip. <laughs> I get all the best topics. And uh, so we've been going through this well-being series, um, looking at every aspect of our lives and how God has a plan for our well-being in every aspect of our lives. And we've looked at uh, relational, we've looked at emotional, we've looked at spiritual, we've looked at anyone... Physical, thank you very much, and probably one other that I'm missing uh, off the list. And so when we talk about finances, it's really important to say uh, early on that this is not a giving talk. This isn't about um, looking at giving, although we will touch upon that. This is really to talk about what is God's plan for this area of my life? What is God's plan for my finances? How is that connected to my spirituality? How is it connected to my faith, or is it something separate, or perhaps it's something I've never even thought about. And the word that we've lent into for this series is this word shalom, um, which is a, a Hebrew greeting, which means peace, but more specifically, it means wholeness. And when you would greet someone with shalom, you would say, may you be whole, or may every area of your life be whole, may every area of your life be at peace with God. And so that's really uh, what we've been exploring as we get into this topic. And typically uh, in our country, in our culture, when we talk about finances, everyone just clenches up a little bit, don't they? Like imagine that, greeting someone for the first time. Hey, how are you doing? Uh, where, where are you from? What's your name? How much do you earn? <laughs> I don't think you're going to be best friends straight away. So it's a topic that can make us feel uh, a little bit uncomfortable. And our emotions are probably tied to our finances in ways that we don't always want to admit in ways that we don't always want to acknowledge. And so there's a verse that I'd love to just lead us in this morning. We've got a few areas in the Bible that we're going to be looking at, and so don't worry if you can't jump to them in time. They're all going to come up on the screen. But the first one is this, Proverbs 11, verse 4, and it says this, Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. And I want to start with that because so often we're, we're driven by this idea that we need to pursue wealth. We need to pursue um, earning our finances and gathering that up over time. And listen to this story. There was a man who had worked all his life and saved all his money. He was a real miser, stingy when it came to his money. He loved money more than just about anything. And just before he died, he said to his wife, now listen, when I die, you should never start a conversation with your wife like that. Um, now listen, when I die, I want you to take all my money and place it in the casket with me. I want you to take all my money to, I want to take all my money to the afterlife with me. And so he got his wife to promise with all her heart that when he died, she would put all the money in the casket with him. Well, one day he died, he was stretched out in the casket and the wife was sitting there in black next to their best friend. When they'd finished the ceremony, just before the undertakers got ready to close the casket, the wife said, wait a minute. She had a shoebox with her, and she came over with the box and placed it lovingly in the casket. Then the undertakers locked the casket and rolled it away, and her friend said, I hope you weren't crazy enough to put all that money in there with that stingy old man. She said, yes, I promised. I'm a good Christian, and I cannot lie. I promised him that I was going to put that money in the casket with him. And the friend said, you mean to tell me you put every penny of his money in the casket with him? I sure did, said the wife. I got it all together. I put it into my account, and I wrote him a check. <laughs> and should he ever want to cash it, <laughs> he can take it with him. That, 
It's a fun story, but the principle of this is that every resource that we have, everything that we're fortunate to have, everything that comes to us, uh, cannot go with us. I trust you're keenly aware of that, but what we have in the here and now is very much in the here and now. And when we step into the next side of eternity, um, we won't be taking some of those material things with us. In fact, elsewhere in the Bible, it says that those things are burnt up, they're incinerated, and what's left uh, is gold. And that gold will be things like faith, hope, and love. They will be eternal things that last. They will be the quality of the way in which you gave yourself to the Lord. Now, I don't know if you know this, but in the Bible, there's 2,350 verses in the Bible that talk about money, possessions, or wealth. One third of all of Jesus' teachings recorded in the New Testament reference money in one way or another. And no commentator would dispute that, that it's not an allegory about something else. But Jesus is tackling things that are very personal to us, things that are very difficult for us to grasp in life. He's hitting the heart of issues. And I believe it's that money significantly represents something of value to us. When you talk about money, you do hit issues of the heart. You do hit issues that make us agitated, and probably why Jesus spent one-third of his teachings on the topic was because he wanted to agitate issues of the heart. And the question for you and I, certainly if you're a follower of Jesus in this room today, is what is the state of my heart towards these things? What is the state of my heart towards my finances? How do these things Honor God. Do these things honor God. You know, in the Bible, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. That's quite a powerful verse to grapple with. I'm throwing that out there. That's one you can do on your own time. But here's the key. If you allow money to rule your hearts, if you allow the desire to have more, it will make you a servant. And none of us are called to be a servant of money. We're called to be a servant of God. In fact, the Bible says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. I want you to notice the phrase there, it's not that money is the root of all kinds of evil, it's the love of money. And so this is why it's important, particularly if we're following Jesus, that we get our hearts right, that we don't allow money to rule, instead we need to make it a tool. And it must be true because it rhymes. Okay, that actually we're driven in our country by GDP growth. We're driven in our businesses by results and financial performance. If you own any shares in a company, the shareholders are only generally interested in what's the profit, what's the return. And the danger is that our heart can go along with those things. And we become someone that falls in love with money. And we let it rule, but don't let it rule. Make it a tool. Someone once said that money is a great tool, but a lousy master. It's rubbish at being in charge of your life. And It ties up so much emotion. And if you don't believe me, just try missing a mortgage payment. Just try not paying your rent, and you'll soon realize you feel something about that moment. It has a power over us in so many ways. And I'm going to share with you this morning not not rules, not things that you have to follow. I'm just going to share with you some observations on Scripture that have helped me, things that I've learned along the way. And it's up to you. You pay your money and you take your choice. You You can listen to this and go, no, that's not a principle I really want to lean into. Or you can go... Wow, that's, I've never looked at it that way before. Maybe I want to ask those tough questions, but I learned the hard way. Um, Libby's very good with money, and I'm, I'm very good with money, but I wasn't always good with money. There was a time in my life, and I shared a number of weeks ago about business that um, I started in 2008 during the financial crash, and um, we had tens of thousands of pounds of debt as a company, and that created some emotion in me created some feelings of anxiety and what happened when I was 18 years old running that business is I didn't have the financial skills to pick it apart 
But what I discovered is over the years that I was missing some helpful principles. I was missing some um, well-being around my finances. And I spent the better part of 10 years digging out of debt, the better part of 10 years of dealing with my finances and recognizing that this stuff that had gotten me into trouble was something that was also supposed to glorify God. And that actually if I was in the place of trouble, rather than ignore it, I needed to face up to my circumstance. And not only that, I needed people to help me. And the reason I'm throwing that out there is because it is one of these topics that just makes us clam up. That if we're struggling with, with our finances, if we're struggling with uh, paying the bills, if we're struggling with debt, that we don't want to talk about it. We want to pretend that everything's okay, but that's not God's well-being plan for your life around your finances. That actually he wants you to be relieved of some of these anxieties. And a part of that is finding brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's finding good organizations that will help you. It's finding clarity on some of those principles. So what does Jesus have to say about our finances? Well, it turns out uh, a lot. There's some keys for us to follow. There's some things to align in our hearts. And we have to allow our attitude to money to undergo a divine transformation. You see, before I knew Jesus, uh, I could do what I want. Now I know Jesus. I actually still can do what I want. uh, But I'm led by the Lord and I'm led by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And he has a plan for me in this area. And it's one that he's challenged with uh, so many times with different people that came up to speak to him. And so if you've got a Bible, the main passage we're going to live in this morning is Matthew chapter 19. And you'll find it about two-thirds of the way into the New Testament. If you're scrolling on your phone, you'll get there way quicker than someone with a paper Bible. But it's going to come up on screen. Uh, And this is a story where Jesus is sat around teaching. Uh, He's had Pharisees and teachers of the law, people that are wise in Scripture, come and challenge him and put him under the gun on some difficult topics. Uh, And then the Bible tells us that there's a guy that sort of comes out of the crowd and asks a really tough question about money to Jesus. Um, And it spirals into this unique conversation. We'll pick it up in verse 16. Matthew 19, verse 16 says this. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, we're going to find out in a minute, he's, he's a rich young man, he's got everything going for him, he's living the high life, people would look at him as a model, an example of a good person, and so he's coming up, I don't know if he's trying to be clever, the Bible doesn't really tell us, I don't know if he's just recognizing there's something missing in his life, I don't know if he just wanted to have a conversation with Jesus and test him, the Bible doesn't tell us those things, but it does tell us uh, that there's a unique circumstance around this rich young man, and verse 17 Jesus says to him, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. And if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Now again, I wonder if Jesus is setting him up for a a unique conversation. The young man replies, which ones? Jesus replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbors as yourself. All of these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? And I, don't, I kind of read this with a little bit of smugness. Like, I've got this down, Jesus. What am I missing? Why can't I enter the kingdom of God? Why can't I enter the eternal life? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Again, I tell you, it's easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a lot going on in this passage. Just a little side note as well. If you've ever heard anyone preach on this message, you'll hear something like, the camel through the eye of a needle, what is that? Maybe it was a gate in Jerusalem that everyone knew about. There's actually not a lot of evidence, and by that I mean none, um, to, to verify that. Actually, what we think is going on, what a lot of scholars say is that Jesus is just trying to be funny. He's being witty, he's being clever. This is a little bit of uh, an analogy where Jesus says, it is easier for someone to go, for a camel to be squeezed through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this might seem like, okay, yeah, I'm familiar with this story. I'm familiar with the fact that we've got to use our, you know, our money and generously and wisely. Why is it a big deal? But actually, this is a huge deal for the disciples. It's a huge deal for anyone listening to this parable. And I'll show you. Verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. They weren't like, oh, yeah, I'm sure it must be difficult. Oh, that's a little bit weird. They were greatly astonished. And they asked, who then can be saved? Now, the reason they asked that is in the first century, they had this perception, and arguably some of us today still carry this perception, that if somebody is wealthy, they're blessed by God. And we'll say things like they're blessed. But really what we mean is, isn't it great they've got lots of resources that they must have the favor of God? And then the rich young man also said that he was perfect at keeping the law. So for the first century disciples, someone who was rich and was very good at living a righteous life looked on the surface to have it all together. They looked like the model of perfection. They looked like the thing to aspire to. And so the reason they were greatly astonished, because in their heads, if he can't get into heaven, I have no hope. I'm skint. Like, if the rich man is blessed, then what does that mean for me? If someone who's perfect at keeping the law, I, I struggle to, to pay attention to the rules in school, and now I've got to try and live in this righteousness that Jesus is talking about all the time. I have no hope. And so what they're doing in the first century is they're comparing their lives to this model young man. Have you ever compared yourself to someone else? Did everyone just say no? <laughs> Has anyone ever lied? No. Uh, <laughs> oh, we, get, we get caught in that all the time, don't we? You know, you scroll on Instagram or other social media that you prefer, uh, and you look at, you know, the best picture, the best presentation, and, and you see, like, business gurus and 10x your life and all of this kind of jazz, and they're, they're, there's this model of success that just comes wave after wave in our lives. And it's like sometimes we forget the words of Jesus. And we forget that actually we're called to be disciples. We forget that we're living, for those of us that have put our faith in Jesus, we're living with an eternal perspective. We're living for things that will last for eternity, not things that will perish and fade away. In fact, in 1 Peter, it says that, that humanity's glory is like a blade of grass. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. It's insignificant. And so the challenge for us constantly as Christians is what are we living for from an eternal perspective? The disciples didn't have that. They had this idea that I need to aspire to be like this young, righteous person who was rich and wealthy. So verse 26, Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. In other words, there's an eternal perspective. There's something you're not appreciating. Verse 27, Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? 
What a thing to say to Jesus. Like, we, we dropped our, our fishing business. Peter was a successful fisherman. He was lined up to take on his father's business. He probably would have had a decent life making a living out of it, and he left it all to follow Jesus. And in this moment, when he's realized that this rich young man has, uh, has had this challenge, he says, we've left everything. What then will it be for us? And verse 28, Jesus answered them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. There's a reason people didn't find it easy to follow Jesus. He threw, down, he threw down some of the most difficult challenges. And, and that last phrase there, maybe you're familiar with that if you've been in church for, for a, a, any length of time. But the first shall be last and the last shall be first. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is a little bit backwards to the way we see the world. Or a little bit forwards, depending on how you look at it. Right? We, what we value and what we put our effort and time and resource, the kingdom of heaven is, is almost the opposite in some respects. What it's saying is actually it's issues of the heart, that every resource, everything you have is for the Lord. And you cannot take it with you. So how you use it then here and now probably matters. And I say that as a faithful follower of Jesus, it's not really probably, it does. That actually everything I have has been given to me by God. I haven't done anything of my own volition. Sure, he's given me skills and abilities. He's given me a, a, a mind to think with. But everything in this universe came from the Lord. And so actually every good thing that I might have has to be attributed to him. And so Jesus is driving at the issue of the heart. Is he saying it's wrong to be rich? No, I don't think he is. We know he's not because in the New Testament elsewhere it tells us about plenty of rich people that use their time and resource to serve the kingdom. In fact, people are supposed to have resource in order to resource things. Elsewhere, Jesus says, you know, for those who have been given much is expected. And so there's an expectation on us that we shouldn't necessarily get rid of it all. But Jesus was driving at the issue of the heart. For the young man, he's kept all of the commandments. He's living a perfect life. Isn't that wonderful? So Jesus goes, okay, the issue really isn't the stuff. The issue is your attitude towards it. What about if you sold it all and followed me? And the Bible says the young man went away sad. He felt something about the thing he was asked to give up. His heart was attached to his resource. His heart was attached to his money, and Jesus discerned that. And I wonder if actually Jesus was even just testing him. Imagine if he'd said, okay, I'll follow you, and Jesus went, actually, you don't have to give it up. I just wanted to see. I just wanted to see your response. Do you love money more than me? And of course, the young man just went away. Goodness knows what became of him. Maybe it was the story I told at the start. <laughs> so here's three principles then. What, what can we do? What can we do to make sure money doesn't rule our heart? What can we do to invite the Lord into our well-being around our finances? And there's four things that have helped me. Again, take them or leave them. Some of you will be brilliant at this. Some of you, this will feel like I'm teaching you to suck eggs. Um, it's not a skill I'm familiar with, but some of you will be like, this is, this is really challenging. I just want to latch on to one thing. For me, um, these are in order of priority. This is how uh, Libby and I do it, and we base it in Scripture. We're not perfect, and if you've got any extra tips as well, I'd love to hear from you uh, afterwards as well, because we always want to grow in these areas. But the first one is this. Now, when I have uh, a, a paycheck come in, 
um, or any finance that, that comes into our account, we ask these four questions, we pray about them. The first one is this, in the order of priority, we give some. Our first priority is this, Lord, what is it that you want me to give? What is it that you want me to hand over? And so um, you'll notice that in our church, we don't pass around a collection plate. We pass around chocolate, uh, which is way more fun. Uh, but if you've been to church before, you might see, you know, at some point they pass, pass around a collection plate. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with churches that do that. But there's a reason uh, that we do, don't do it. And there's a reason we, we want to remind you that, that rather than have, have a little plate go around and you put something in it. And if you do want to give cash on the morning, there's a little box at the back. But we want you to be really intentional about what God has given you. And we're encouraging you as a church to think about what is it the Lord has in mind for your finances around giving. And so the verse that I would lean into is this 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7. And this is Paul teaching the church about giving. This is what he says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Right, there's no lock-in, there's no chance where you won't be allowed to escape unless you give a certain amount. You're not under compulsion, you're not under obligation, but the Bible says you need to pray about it. You need to decide in your heart. You need to bring it before the Lord and go, God, how much do you want me to give of this? Because what you're doing then is you're saying that everything that comes to me is not necessarily for me. But actually, I recognize everything I have that comes from God. And so my question is, God, what is it that you want from this? And so Libby and I, uh, we have some principles around giving. We're always praying, God, would you help us give more? Would you help us consider how we can give more? And so how much should you give? Should I tithe? Uh, which that's, that basically means to give a, a tenth of what you have. And in the religious world, Jesus would um, mock the Pharisees a little bit because they would say, imagine this like getting um, oregano and... Um, chili peppers and, and carving out a tenth. They would tithe on their herbs and spices and they would like, they would tithe on a tenth of everything and it became this religious principle and Jesus sort of had a bit of fun with them on that and they're missing the point. Should I tithe 10%? Or what about a one offering? Should I just give under, uh, under, in a moment where I'm feeling something? Should I do it pre-tax, post-tax? Should I do it on each deal? Should I do it annually? Should I do it monthly on earned income, on government support or on tax credits? I, the answer is I don't know. Uh, work it out. Um, I, I can give you some guidance of what I do, but the Bible says decide in your heart. Pray about it. Actually, don't come in with this religious mentality of what's the bare minimum I can give. That defeats the object of generosity. Uh, generosity goes, Lord, how can I be a blessing with what I have? And Lord, what does it mean to be radical in my generosity? Like, what would be uncomfortable for me? You know, someone that gives five pounds and someone that gives 5,000 pounds, that's all relative to how much they might earn. The question is, Lord, what would be generous with what's in my hand? And my challenge for this is if you give nothing, start small. Give five pounds or give ten pounds. It's the act of doing something that releases your heart to go, actually, this hasn't got a hold over me. I'm going to be generous with what I've got because God has given me something to give. So for you, I would say just pray it. Pray it through. Pray it through with your spouse. You ought to talk about it. You really ought to talk about it. Um, <laughs> Take a moment. We do it once a term. We go, do we need to just re review our finances? Lord, what is it that we need to give? That's the first principle. The second one is this, save some. But actually, we're not called to give it all away. You might be, and anyone that goes, oh, I, need to, I need to just empty my accounts and be generous with it. What, what a wonderful heart. However, um, your, your mortgage provider will come knocking on your door. 
Um, so just we can slow it down. Let's think about it. Let's pray through. Or, or maybe you've got, you know, you've got things to save up for. Your children are going somewhere, doing something. Uh, you've got to make sure that your family's thriving, not just surviving. And so the second principle is save some. Proverbs 21 verse 20 says this, The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. A friend of mine uh, uh, challenged me on this, that actually, what am I setting aside for the future? Sometimes as Christians, and if you're not a Christian, here's just a, a little peek behind the scenes. For us who are Christians, we can live so much from a place of faith that we're not always diligent enough to save some money for the future. In fact, when I was growing up, some people would be like, Jesus is coming back soon. Yeah, but I soon's quite a while, and we don't know when that is, so probably save some money for the future. Probably save so that you've got something to give ahead of time. Libby and I were blessed during COVID uh, where we were running a ministry for young people, several youth groups, and there was, a, there was a wonderful couple that was able to give us thousands of pounds to get it off the ground and minister to many young people during a tough time. And the reason that they could be generous in that moment is because they saved something. They saved something for their future. So give some, save some. The next one is spend some. Everyone went hip hip. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. You all cheered for that one. That's good. Um, Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, you will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that truly is life. Wisely, diligently, frugally, do spend some. It's, it's not a sin to spend money. Some of you are relieved to hear that this morning. It's not a sin to use the resource that has come to you for some things that are enjoyable. But the Bible actually tells us to, that he provides everything for our enjoyment. But the question is, are we, are we inviting people in? Are we drawing people in as we enjoy those things? Not using it just for ourselves, but for, for the good of those around us as well. Pay your bills, pay your debts, pay into your well-being. It's not a sin to spend it. And do it prayerfully. A friend of mine, again, we, we have a guy who's really good in business. And we gave him access to all of our finances. And we just said to him, um, you can ask us any question about anything. And he said, you know what, Julian, you're very good at saving, you're very good at being frugal, you're very good at the giving side of things, but you're not very good at spending. And it was a great thing to be challenged on. And he's saying, don't, don't become a stingy person, that actually it's okay to go on holiday, it's okay to, to buy a new pair of shoes, it's okay to do it, as long as you're, you're stewarding your finances well, it's okay to go and bless someone with a coffee out. Nothing wrong with those things, don't feel bad about them. But actually the Lord's given you resource, and the question always is, God, how can I best enjoy it in a way that honors you. So don't feel bad about uh, spending money. If that's all you do, maybe you've got to re reassess and pray through those things. And then the fourth thing, which I, I've added over the years, is invest some. This is something that not every Christian is very good at, but if, you're, if your incoming is more than your outgoings, you, you're, you're dealing with your debts, you're you're, you're giving and you're saving and you're spending wisely and you've got something left over. The Bible actually has a lot to say about investing. And this is not investment advice. Everyone say, Julian's not giving me an investment advice. <laughs> Don't sue me. You've got to use your own wisdom. Apply yourself. Figure it out. Go and get a financial advisor. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 1 to 2. Ship your grain across the sea. If you've got grain, just take it out. Ship it across the sea. Um, <laughs> Right, this was written thousands of years ago, okay, so it, everyone was good at growing grain. Um, 
After many days, you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures. Yes, in eight, uh, you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. Again, written thousands of years ago. Uh, let's, let's apply it to the modern day resource that you have. Use it uh, and invest in a wise way. Um, it's sensible to put something away in savings, but it's also sensible to see a return on steady, boring investments that aren't a massive risk. But get some advice on those things. Christians, again, haven't always been good at that. So those are the four principles Libby and I live by. Um, you may be thinking, not for me, that's okay, this isn't a hard sell. But these are four things that have helped us as we've said, God, what is your plan for my money? First of all, to give. God, what I have is yours. I'm going to give something over. We're going to pray about it. We're going to do it intentionally. We're going to do it thoughtfully. Many of us in this church, we give by standing order. It helps us budget. It helps us think about the future. After I've given, I'm going to save someone. Lord, what is it that I need to put away for the future? What is it that I want to build up in, or maybe to bless someone or to use for our family to make sure that we're not in a place of difficulty? Spend some. God, help me to do that wisely. Help me to do it diligently. Help me not buy into the consumer mentality. Help me to, to honor you in my finances and invest some. God, give me some wise people that can tell me how to do that in a wise and safe way. But Lord, if there's issues, help me to deal with them. And so maybe that will help you. Maybe it won't. If, you, if you're someone that's really good in these areas, I'd love to pick your brains as well for like what you would do, what you would add to that. What has the Lord shown you over time? But get around people that can help you in these areas. Let's uh, demystify the tensions around finances and go, God, what is your plan for my well-being in these things? And 